uh, I noticed that I had some uh, gifts here at my table, and uh, I'm very hesitant to look in there because I know some of those are food. <laughs> and I want you to know that uh, last year this vest actually fit me. And uh, this year I noticed that it's much tighter. So uh, as soon as Christmas is over, I'm going on a, a diet. <clears throat> so hopefully next year I'll be half the man that I am this year. <laughs> so uh, if you are guests with us, we welcome you to the President's class. And we are in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are actually concluding with Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And we come to the, what's called the Great Commission, which sets the agenda for the church between Christ's resurrection and the second coming. That's what the Great Commission is all about. Because we've studied the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse, we are able to interpret the Great Commission within that context. Oftentimes you just hear a sermon on the Great Commi Commission and you don't have any context for it. And we're just told that we need to go out and we need to uh, share the gospel around the world. But when you read it, you'll discover that Jesus is speaking to his 11 apostles. The Great Commission, long before it was to us, was to the apostles. Okay? And that's the context. And the context also of this Great Commission is the gospel of the kingdom. That was the gospel that's to be preached. And most people who go out and preach the gospel have no idea what the gospel of the kingdom is about. They just say, invite Jesus into your heart, you want to go to heaven. But when you look at Matthew's gospel, they're talking about something a little bit different. So we need to understand the Great Commission in that context as well. So, the way we read Matthew is that we opened up Matthew and we saw the birth of the king. And this is where God announces that Jesus is the king at his birth. Then we see Jesus' baptism and God anoints Jesus as the king. The Holy Spirit comes down and God says, this is the king, this is my beloved son. And then we see the temptation of Jesus by Satan who tries to offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world so that Jesus is shortchanged from being king of the entire universe. And it's a temptation, and he doesn't give in to that temptation. Satan says, all the kingdoms are yours for the asking. All you have to do is bow down and worship him. And then Jesus goes out in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's empowered to do the ministry of the kingdom through word and deed. And he preaches the gospel of the kingdom, he heals people, he cast out demons. All that is done in the region of Galilee. And so we see the kingdom power being manifested through Jesus. And then when you get toward the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus starts moving from Galilee of the north down south toward Jerusalem. And he comes and he enters Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. We have the entering of the king. And they hail him. They say, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us now. Deliver us from the Roman Empire. And then he goes in and he overturns the tables in the temple. And he's basically saying, this is the end of Judaism as we know it. The priests are not God's representative on earth. I am God's representative. And then we see, after that, he is uh, 
sits down and he has a last meal. And this is the kingdom meal. Where he says, I, he says in this meal, I give to you a kingdom. Just as the Father gave me a kingdom, so give I you a kingdom. And this is the kingdom meal. And it becomes the basis for our Lord's Supper. And then we see that the Roman Empire and the Jewish authorities uh, execute Jesus, denying that he's the king, rejecting him as the king. But there's one man, the centurion, and some of his fellows who recognize that Jesus is the king. They say, surely this is the Son of God, which means he's God's representative on earth. And so they crucify him and he's buried. And then God raises him from the dead and he vindicates him. He says, this is the king. And he's proven it by raising Jesus from the dead. And then last week we saw that the women were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And they're told to go back and find the 11 apostles, the remaining 11 apostles, and proclaim that Jesus is alive and that he's going to meet them up in Galilee. And that's where we pick up with the Great Commission we find this encounter that they have with Jesus in Galilee. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee. See, they do exactly what these women have told them to do. That's always good advice. Do whatever the women tell you to do. Yeah, amen, that's right. <laughs> now, if they go to Galilee, remember they were all huddled behind four walls in Jerusalem, afraid that they're going to end up getting crucified. Now they go up north to Galilee, which is about 80 miles. That means it's going to take them several days to get there on foot. This doesn't happen like the day after the resurrection. At least a week has passed, maybe more than that. We don't know how much. But they end up going into Galilee. Now Galilee is equivalent to our state. Texas is a state. Galilee was a state, or what we call in Canada, a province. So you have a state, and then you have cities within the state. Well, we have Dallas, we have you know, Austin, we have Houston. They're the cities. Galilee is the state of the province, and in that province you have Nazareth, Cana, Capernaum. Those are the cities. So they go up north into Galilee, which is a region where a lot of Gentiles live, which would be very important for Matthew's audience. Because they live up north. And they, are, they have Jews and Gentiles uh, in the church. And so that's where they go. And notice it says they went to Galilee to the mountain. In verse 16. Which Jesus had appointed for them. Uh, what mountain are we talking about? Uh, nowhere does it say Jesus told them to go to a mountain. And it makes it look like in the New King James Version that they were to go to a mountain that Jesus had appointed for them. But actually what it's referring to is the mountain where Jesus appointed them to be apostles. And we can see this if you, you're, you're right at the end of Matthew. If you just turn over to Mark, to chapter 3, we discover that mountain. And we won't read much of this, but if you look at Mark in verse 13. This is very early in Jesus' ministry. It says, He went up to the mountain. See that? And He called to Him those whom He wanted, and they came. And look at this. 
Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. They appoint, he appoints them, and he sends them out to preach. And guess what's going to happen right at the end of the book of Matthew? They're going to gather together in that mountain where he appointed them, and he's going to again send them out to preach. Very interesting, isn't it? And he sent them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons, which is uh, a kingdom type of ministry. And then it lists the twelve apostles there. So go back to Matthew chapter 28. So that's where they gather sometime after his resurrection. And they see him and notice how they react uh, to this encounter with Jesus in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Very similar to what the women had done when they saw the resurrected Jesus. It says they worshipped him. Remember that? And it means literally they bowed down to him. Uh, but that's not the end of the story in verse 17. It says they worshipped him, but look at this. Some doubt it. Now what do you make of that? They see the resurrected Jesus. They all bowed down and worshipped him, but guess what? Some were doubting. They're saying, hey, what's going on around here? Well, what would you do if Jesus showed up today? And oh, there's Jesus walking through the door. So let's all bow down and worship. What would you say do? Then you'd just say, oh, streets and worship. Gee, there he is. Now you say, is that Jesus? Now remember, they haven't seen Jesus in his resurrected body. This is a glorified body. You know what one of those looks like? I don't. But I know one thing. It can go through walls. and it can, It's sort of scary. I think they're very skeptical. Suspicious. Wonder what's going on. You know, we're bowing down. This is what we should do. We only bow down to God. I mean, this is what's going on. See, they're doubting. Now, if they doubt when Jesus is standing right in front of them, what about us who've never seen him? Some of you may have doubts occasionally. Here, they, these are apostles who are doubting Jesus when they see the resurrected Jesus. You've never seen him. And you have doubts, and you say, is that good that I have doubts? Hey, it's normal to have doubts. That doesn't mean you're not a person of faith, just because you have doubts. These people have doubts. See? Which proves to me that seeing is not believing. We always say seeing is believing. Hey, they seem, and guess what? They have doubts. Seeing's not believing. Blessed are they who have not seen, yet still believe. And if you have a doubt in your mind that comes in, that's okay to say, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Okay, we're not perfect. And so, here, the, this makes them very human. They see the resurrected Jesus and they have doubts. And if you've ever had a doubt, you're in good company. So don't feel so bad about it. Okay? Belief isn't the absence of doubt. Okay? So now look what happens. Jesus approaches them. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them. 
That tells me that when they worshipped him, they worshipped him from afar. See? Verse 17, they worshipped him. Verse 18, he came. So it's like they see him coming over the crest of the mountain and they go, oh, Jesus. And they realize that he's glorious. He's different than he was before. They bow down and they worship him. Some doubt. And so then what he does is he approaches them and he gets real close to them. And he says something to them. Look what he says in verse 18. He spoke to them saying, Some authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Isn't that what it said? It says, All authority. Now remember, Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms. All the kingdoms of this world on earth are mine, they're yours. He could have had the kingdoms of the world just by Satan giving them to him. But notice what he says here. All authority has been given to me where? Heaven and earth. That means he's given authority over all of God's creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And guess what? There's been a rebellion in heaven by the angels, and there's been a rebellion on earth, and he's taking it all back. And God gives him all authority. Now what does that mean? Well, it means the totality of authority. Now some of you have had to deal with legal issues, and you have given a lawyer the power of attorney. That means you've given him or her the authority to represent you. That's delegated authority. They didn't have the authority until you gave it to them. This is delegated authority. Jesus did not have this authority until God gave it to him. He gives it to him after his resurrection. Delegated authority. When you give power attorney to a lawyer, you're giving them limited authority. They can only speak on your behalf on those areas that you assign them to speak. See, they don't represent you in every area of life, but Jesus is given all authority, unlimited authority, in heaven and on earth. So he represents God, the Father, without limits. He represents God in the heavenly court. He represents God down here on earth, all of creation. Now, it's very interesting that up until Jesus' resurrection, his death and resurrection, we believe that Satan had somehow usurped the authority of Adam and Eve. Remember, God created Adam and Eve, and he made them in his image, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply and take what? Dominion over what? The earth. And we believe that Satan, through this usurped authority, has, has grabbed hold of the earth. And that's why he has the right to offer Christ the kingdoms of the earth. But on the cross, Jesus defeats Satan. He, as the last Adam, Jesus defeats Satan, and he takes back that authority. And God extends his authority over all of heaven and over all of earth. So Christ reigns over all of creation. That means he's the universal king. Whether people realize it or not. He reigns right now at the right hand of God the Father, and he has authority over heaven and earth, whether people realize it or not. You realize it, but guess what? The majority of the world doesn't realize it. That's why they need to be told, and that's what this Great Commission is all about. So he speaks to the apostles, 
And he gives them a responsibility, a duty. Look what he says. Go therefore. Now notice he's speaking to the apostles. We always make this about us. It is about us, but primarily, in its context, it was speaking to the eleven apostles. Therefore, meaning on the basis that I have been given authority, I'm giving you orders on behalf of God. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. Now where do you want the disciples to go? Look what it is, what he says. Therefore, go, and here's what he wants them to do. Make disciples. That means make followers. Produce followers. People who can uh, model their life. Go and make disciples. Where? Make disciples of all the nations. Now, that word, nations, is from a Greek word that you're all, you all recognize. It's the word ethne, from which we get our word ethnic. Make disciples among all the nations. Now, the question is, how is that Greek word to be translated? It can be translated one of two ways. It can be translated Gentiles. And some of your Bibles may say, go make disciples of Gentiles. If that's the case, he is commissioning the 11 Jewish apostles to go out and make converts amongst the Gentiles. Paul will later tell us that it is through the salvation of the Gentiles that Israel itself has hope. Because when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then God starts to work again with the Jewish people. So that's one possibility. The second possibility is the way most of our Bibles translate the word ethne, and that is simply what? Nations. (laughs) See, in most Bibles, translators who are Greek scholars translated nations or nationalities. Now, remember, the Gospel of Matthew opens up with the words, Jesus Christ, Son of Abraham. Do you remember that? That's how the Gospel opens up. God established a covenant with Abraham and he said, through your seed, singular, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus fulfills that covenant and it's through Christ's death and resurrection that the nations are brought into the covenant. And so he tells them that this is what it means to go out and make Followers of those nations that would be the people in those nations, all nationalities. Now, those nations, at this point, when Jesus is saying this, all those nations that were that existed back in Abraham's day are now controlled by Rome. The Roman Empire controls what is known as the entire civilized world. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, what he's saying is, go out there and make disciples or converts from all the nations that the Roman Empire now controls. All these nations who are now giving their allegiance to Caesar. What you're to do is go and call them to give their allegiance to King Jesus. Which makes this a very subversive and a very dangerous message. 
It's one that will get you killed. The Apostle Paul never ended up in jail because he preached, hey, do you want to go to heaven? Ask Jesus into your heart. Rome wouldn't have cared a whit if he had done that. But what he said was to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be delivered. Up until that time, the Philippian jailer worked for Rome and his allegiance was to Caesar. To transfer his allegiance from Caesar to Jesus could have cost him his job and his life. So this is a very dangerous message that they are to carry out and the job that they're to carry out. They are to call, make disciples unto King Jesus who before were followers and gave their allegiance to King Caesar. Does that make sense? So you just need to sort of think about that. That's very important. Now how are they to do this? Well, it's very interesting. In verse 19, they're to do it by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's in the act of baptism that we pledge our allegiance to King Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now, where they would baptize them would be if they go out from Galilee, they'd probably baptize them in Lake Galilee. Would a convert baptize them in Lake Galilee? Also called Lake Tiberius. Tiberius was Caesar. Tiberius Caesar. Caesar owns all the water and all the water rights. Caesar owns all the land. Caesar owns it all. <laughs> He's king of the Roman Empire. So they were to baptize these new converts to Jesus in water that was owned by Caesar. But in being baptized in water that was owned by Caesar, they were to come out and give their allegiance to King Jesus. Boy, that's a troublemaking gospel if I've ever seen one. So we're initiated into God's kingdom through baptism. That's the way we pledge our allegiance. We give our loyalty to Jesus. In the book of Acts, every convert, and this would be in the early church, the book of Acts, after Jesus is resurrected, every convert is baptized. There's not one convert that's not baptized. You can't find any. That's the way we give our allegiance to Jesus. Baptism is absolutely essential to the preaching of the gospel and the Great Commission. I'm convinced that we've lost, that baptism has lost its significance today. Even in Baptist churches. One reason is we baptize not in Caesar's waters, we baptize behind four walls and only other Christians see it. It's going to really baptize them. You know what I would do? I'd baptize them in the open, let everybody see it. Where they have to proclaim Jesus as Lord and everybody sees it, their employers see it, their neighbors see it. It's not done behind the four walls. And today, if a person gets baptized, they can just walk away from the faith, can't they? Doesn't cost them a thing. In those days, when you got baptized and you joined the church, you walked away, you were an apostate. <laughs> Everyone recognized, look, they recognized that you had given your allegiance to Jesus and you walked away. You couldn't say, well, I don't like that church, I'm going to go over that church. They didn't have two churches to go to. You either went to that church, you went to no church. So, someone suggested that if we got baptized in, 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 in ink, 
indelible ink, India ink. Only make it red crimson ink. If we got baptized in ink, we'd be marked for life. I like that idea. If you got baptized in ink, you'd be marked for life. And everyone would know what you are. Wouldn't they? It'd be all over you. And if you decided to walk away, everyone would know what you did. Oh, there was a guy, look at him, he's got the ink on him. He used to be a disciple of Jesus, now he's not a disciple of Jesus. See, that's the kind of commitment that a person made when they got baptized because they were saying, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. It could cost you something. And so when they're, Jesus is calling them to make disciples among these different peoples, uh, this is a major, major commitment. And he says, do this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now we have a problem. No doubt about it. Because in the book of Acts, no one is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not one person. They're all baptized in Jesus' name. They didn't start baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit until the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century. So what's going on here? Is the church has been disobedient? Probably when Matthew writes this gospel, written sometime after 80 AD, they are now baptizing in the name of the Trinity. And so when he tells the story, he may just be putting those words there, because he's, he's not you know, giving you a verb. When he writes 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, he's not giving you a verbatim account of what happened. You can't, this is a summary, right? Summarized in how many verses? Four verses. This event, if you really told about it, could, could fill up maybe a chapter of a book. So he's just summarizing. And maybe when he's telling the story and he's writing it down, he's saying, Jesus said we should baptize, and he could have just thought of the way we're baptizing today in 83 AD or something, and he throws, because we do it in the name of the Trinity. Uh, we're not sure on that, okay? But the bottom line is, I guess here's the issue. The issue is they only baptized in the name of Jesus up until the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century. The important thing is this. Not the formula. The important thing is that you pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ as king. That's really the important thing. And then the second thing, second way you are to make disciples, look at verse 20. First, baptizing, and then second, the second participle, I-N-G word, is teaching. Okay? Teaching them. Teaching them what? Oh, it's not teaching them what. It's teaching them to do what. Look at this. Teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. See, now the way we do it is we baptize people and then we teach them. Here's what we do. We teach them doctrine. We teach them about, you know, uh, having a quiet time. You know, things like that. What did they teach? They're told to teach the new converts to observe, which means to do, or to obey all those things that I commanded you. So what we're doing is we're teaching toward a goal, and the goal is obedience. Jesus wants disciples who are obedient. And 
the basis for this ethical teaching, this ethical living, would be the teachings of Jesus. What did he teach them to do? Well, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, you find out what he taught them to do. Take care of the poor, do this, do that. That's what we are to do. That's what it means to be a disciple. Uh, it's not enough to be baptized. You notice that? He didn't stop the Great Commission with baptism. It's not enough to make a profession of faith. You say, well, there's a Christian, that's a disciple. It's not enough to ask them to walk down the aisle and come and stand in front of the preacher. It's not enough to ask them to tithe. That's important. It's not enough to ask them to believe the right doctrine. Notice he doesn't say, he teaches them to believe the right doctrine. Does he say that in verse 20? No, he teaches them to what? Observe all things. That means to obey all things. It's not enough to teach them to just have a quiet time or read the Bible. That's the way we usually do follow-up. Let's face it. He says, teach them to observe some things or what? All things. See that? That's why it's so important that we go through a book like this, verse by verse, so you really don't miss out on anything. And when you see what Jesus tells them to do, then that's what we should be doing, and that's how we should be doing our follow-up. Boy, that puts a big task on these apostles. So it's very interesting when these 11 apostles go out and start doing this, there's only 11 of them. How are you going to teach your new converts to do all these things so they decide we're going to plant churches? That's where it's going to be done. And they would stay at a church for a while, and then they would leave a Timothy behind, and they would move on and preach in another area and plant another church and leave another pastor behind, and that's how they fulfilled the Great Commission. And then he makes a promise. Look what he says. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He doesn't expect the apostles to do this on their own. Uh, and I will say that he doesn't expect us to do it on our own any more than he expected them to do it on their own. He says, lo, I am with you always. Now, they're not going to see him always, right? But he promises he's going to be with them always. So this is going to have to be a faith proposition, that you believe that when you step out and you preach the gospel of the kingdom and you baptize people and you teach people, that Christ is right there ministering with you and through you, whether you can see him or not. So this is a faith proposition here. Lo, I am with you always. Now, how did the book of Matthew open? The birth of Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Emmanuel. Remember that? You shall call his name Emmanuel in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Which means what? God with us. God with us. How does Jesus end this? Lo, I am what? With you always. Showing that Jesus is the representation of God on earth. And he is the Emmanuel who is God with us. How long is he with us? He is with us always, even to the end of the age. Now, what's the end of the age? See, we could come up with a thousand theories on what the end of the age is if we hadn't read through the Gospel of Matthew so many times, verse by verse. The disciples came and said, Jesus, 
Tell us, when are these things going to be? When's the temple going to be destroyed? Right? And uh, when? what's the sign of your coming? Remember when he said that? And he said this. He said, let me tell you about the end of the age first. He said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, and then the end shall come. Do you remember that? Matthew 24, 14. It's one of my favorite verses. Then this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all nations. Same words, by the way, if you want to look at that. As a witness... And then the end shall come. So the end is when the, the end of the age is when the gospel is preached in all the world. Now I want to tell you something. The apostles go out and they preach the gospel to the ends of the civilized world in their day. They didn't come to the American Indians because they didn't know America existed. Columbus discovered America. But the entire known world, the civilized world, was under the banner of Rome. And the apostles went out and they preached that gospel. They took that gospel to the end of the world. Paul ends up in Rome by 61 AD. He's in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. It says he spent two whole years in his house, under house arrest, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This gospel has reached the ends of the world. And as far as Christ is concerned, once that gospel reached that point, then the end of the age, like the old age, sort of came to an end, and we are now in this end times. Once the gospel reached the end of the world, and remember this from Matthew 24, from that point on, Christ could have come back any second. And he hasn't come back, but he could have come back. Once the gospel reached the end of the world, everybody had a chance to hear it. At that point, he could have come back at any second. But he didn't. And guess what? The apostles passed off the scene, didn't they? So guess who's left with preaching the Great Commission now? As more countries and more civilizations were later discovered. It's us. Peter knows that the church members are so frustrated. They say, when is he going to come back? This gospel's reached in the Rome. And Peter has to say, look, with God, a day is like a thousand years. God's not willing that any should perish. It's the only reason he hasn't come back. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation through Jesus Christ. He's just waiting. God has a timing. We don't understand when that's going to happen. But we are in the end times now, and there's going to come a point where the end times end. And Christ comes back. And until that time, we have this job of carrying out this great commission by preaching the gospel, making disciples of the nations, by baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things. And he makes a promise to us. He assures us that his power is with us. All authority has been given to me, therefore you go. His power is with us. He makes a promise that his presence is with us. <clears throat> Lo, I'm with you always. Did you notice the alls, by the way, in those verses? Verse 18. He has all authority. See that? He has all authority. In verse 19, we're to go to all nations. Second all. And then the third all, we're to teach them to observe all things. 
And because he promises that, lo, he is with us always to the end of the age, we know that the Great Commission will indeed be accomplished and be fulfilled. And then right at the end of that chapter, in black letters, Matthew says, Amen, which means, so be it, allow it to come to pass. This is a true statement. That's what amen means, truly. This is a true statement. It will indeed come to pass as God intended. That's why we have to be at it, all at it, and always at it. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this gospel that we have studied over one year, from Christmas last year to Christmas this year. And hopefully, Lord, that your word has taken root and we have become more than just Christians who believe the right things, but we have also become Christians who observe and do the right things. Lord, as we look back over our lives this past year, may we see growth. Growth in action, growth in practice. And Lord, help us to remember that this Christmas season Is a centers on a message that you are with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Centers on the message that God so loved the world that he gave. And now, Lord, help us to love the world and give this gospel the kingdom, the people of all nations. In Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.